Well, hello again and welcome, listeners, our friends of Carmel. It's great to be back with you again today. We uh, would like to begin by wishing everybody a wonderful feast of Our Lady of the Assumption. And I'd like to take this moment to say hello again to Francis Harry, my uh, co-host in the studio. Good evening, Francis. Hi, Mark. It's a joy to be with you, as always. Well, as we do every week, uh, listeners, let us begin with a prayer. And I'm going to actually steal that duty from Francis this week somewhat uniquely. Uh, I'd like to lead us through a, um, the beginning and then the end of Pope St. Pius X's prayer to Our Lady of the Assumption. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. O Immaculate Virgin, Mother of God and Mother of Humanity, we believe with all the fervor of our faith in your triumphal assumption, both in body and in soul, into heaven, where you are acclaimed as queen by all the choirs of angels and all the legions of saints. We unite with them to praise and bless the Lord who has exalted you above all other pure creatures and to offer you the tribute of our devotion and our love. We believe fully that in the glory where you reign, clothed with the sun and crowned with stars, you are, after Jesus, the joy and the gladness of all the angels and the saints. And from this earth over which we tread as pilgrims, Comforted by our faith in the future resurrection, we look to you, our life, our sweetness, our hope. Draw us onward with the sweetness of your voice, so that one day, after our exile, you may show us, Jesus, the blessed fruit of your womb. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Francis, your reaction, how was your day, the blessed uh, day, the feast day that we had today? Oh, i peaceful. Uh, I have one student, uh, a daughter, who uh, was gone, and so a lot more solitude than normal. The other one was pretty occupied getting ready for school, and so uh, it was a great opportunity to reflect about this wonderful topic tonight because last Monday night when we talked, we had an introduction um, to the life of St. John of the Cross, the doctor of the church, saint, discounted Carmelite, and also a mystic, and one of the greatest Spanish poets of all time. And so we kind of talked about his life. And tonight we have a, a big treat for you because we're going to talk about the dark night. That's right. We're going to begin the introduction. Actually, we'll draw from his writings on the ascent of Mount Carmel. And we'll want to first lay the groundwork. And of course, we gave a bright... Uh, quick biographical sketch last week, but this week we're going to talk specifically about the early stages. Now, we say the early stages, but again, as we cautioned last week, when we're talking about John of the Cross and his writings, recognize that John is writing to a fairly mature spiritual audience. These are people who have certainly begun and have continued for some time along a path of prayer. They've begun to practice some of his recommendations around a detachment and um, freeing themselves from the various passions and uh, uh, distractions, if you will, in their prayer life. So we're going to begin tonight speaking about the first of these active nights of sense. This is uh, referring to, when you hear the word active, it means those things that we can do ourselves, those things that God is looking for us to do to begin to participate deepening our relationship, but also demonstrating our willingness to make a commitment. And I want to bring up, uh, before we delve into that subject, uh, where this is on the big picture, because there's a lot of people have some knowledge about this journey um, and uh, their spiritual journey, so their growth. And some of you may be familiar with the terms, the classical division of the growth in the spiritual life called um, the purgative which would be the first stage, the illuminative, the second stage, and then the unitive, which would be the third and final stage. Now, John of the Cross takes those three, and he gives them different names. So if we bring those out, you'll at least have been introduced. He calls them beginners, which they are, but really his beginners are, are very advanced beginners. And then there are the proficients. Those who have been practicing, they're seasoned, and they're still striving, of course, and, and then the and, perfect. And they begin to understand some of what's happening to them, right, Francis? Right. They begin to know 
what to expect and how to deal with um, what is in fact occurring to them, both in their their uh, material life in the world and their spiritual life as it relates to prayer. These are the professions, right? right? And so John is really addressing his talk and his teaching on the dark night to those souls who really want to grow in union with God. They're they're in love with God and they want to grow. And so this dark night is going to probably fall when we start talking about this active and passive dark night. Um, we're going to get into those divisions here. Uh, but it's going to probably fall near the end of that beginner stage or the end of that purgative stage because there's going to be certain things that a soul is going to do, um, you know, what good practicing Catholics are going to be doing, all right? Um, and at the end of that stage, their prayer life starts to change. So this is where I think that you will find uh, when we start talking about this dark night that this is going to fall. Now, John takes this dark night, and he decides, well, there's got to be two categories of this dark night. There's the dark night of sense, which is more the outward, and the dark night of spirit, which is much more interior. And then on each of those, there's going to be an active phase where we work and a passive phase where we just cooperate with God's work. Right. God does that work in the passive when we're in that passive stage. And it's important, I think critically important, Francis, that we distinguish for our listeners this idea of sense vice spirit. Sense is the way that God uses every single aspect. And we said this so many times in this uh, program in the past, both when we were dealing with uh, St. Teresa and uh, talking about the early stages of the Carmelite uh, order and its charism, We've been very clear to distinguish. God uses every aspect of our material life, our family challenges, our relationships, our physical trials, our jobs, our uh, uh, you know financial situation as it relates to our jobs. Every single aspect of our life is brought to bear by God, if we allow him, in what we call the sense part of our purification. And we should also stress here, uh, you know, so so many people uh, will say, and I've heard this question in our Carmelite community, Francis, people will say, well, give me the synopsis. What is John all about? Mm-hmm. What is he trying to say? It's so complicated. There seems to be so much in there. Uh, just give me the short version. Well, here's the short version of St. John of the Cross. Very simply, John is trying to help us understand how God is working within our soul and through the events of our life to completely purify our love. That's it. That's what St. John of the Cross is all about. All of his writings, all of his philosophy, all of his thinking, all of his uh, uh, spiritual direction, which much of his literature is, is designed to help the human person purify their love to attain union with God. And he talks, he talks a lot about this detachment, about the kinds of prayer, about mortification, practicing the virtues, especially faith, hope, and love. And this, again, is to help us to grow and purify our love. So, Francis, you cautioned me before the program began, and I'm going to try to comply, and you'll tell me where we fail. But um, one of the things, because we know and we hope and, and, and believe that Many of our listeners are not today practicing Carmelites, either uh, within the religious uh, order or in the secular order. Uh, And we invite you, of course, to explore the order and explore other orders, that any order that would deepen your prayer life. This entire program series, as we've said before, is really an invitation to Carmel, which is the same as saying it's an invitation to prayer. Exactly. Uh, Which, uh, to carry that analogy, is an invitation to a deeper, more intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right, because as our catechism says, we're all called to holiness. So John uses terminology that may, at the very outset, put us off a little bit. So let's deal with some of that terminology. Are you going to start with the dark night? I am. What is the dark night? Why does John use the term dark night? He actually tells us specifically. In this first phase, the active night of sense, which is what we're dealing with this evening, although this would apply to any of the dark nights uh, that we'll talk about, or in general, John's text of the dark night, um, these principles apply. Because we must begin to separate ourselves from worldly appetites and worldly passions, and I want to emphasize, these in and of themselves, these passions that 
phrase John uses, or he uses the word appetites at times, they may not in and of themselves be bad things. Again, let's, let's go back to Francis's analogy. We're in the purgative stage, but we're in the deep, uh, advanced levels, if you will, of the purgative stage. If you are uh, struggling with alcoholism, if you're struggling with drug abuse, if you're a person subject to a terrible bouts of anger, if you're uh, still wrestling with, um, uh, you know, uh, thievery or whatever the challenge might be, we've all had these challenges. Everybody faces them on some level. Um, that's not where John is addressing his writing. He's believing that he's writing to a group of people who have worked themselves through uh, what we, quite frankly, would honestly call mortal sin or the deeper, more difficult uh, issues that separate us from God. We are still in a purgative stage, but now we may be talking about uh, an unhealthy attachment to television. We may be talking about an unhealthy relationship. Uh, We may be talking about uh, an unnecessary attachment to clothes or to material things of whatever nature. And again, in and of themselves, not bad, but when they begin to distract or get in the way of our relationship with God, then they become something that John says, we must purge ourselves. And this brings us into darkness. Absolutely. So, um, But this dark night in general is basically God's way of bringing the soul closer to him. And it's not going to feel very good. It's really like the growing pains, just like our teenagers and our adolescents. They have periods of growing pains. Well, so do we have that in the spiritual life. Now, early on, God's enticing the soul by making things more pleasing. You know, oh, we like to pray. Um, we, we love to read scripture. We're excited about images. You know, and these things help get us excited about uh, we may We may get answers to our prayers, right? Oh, yeah. Again, the parental relationship. If your young child comes to you and asks for something special and you know it's going to lift their heart and, you know, bring a smile to their face, you as a parent are much more likely to go ahead and indulge that child. But as the child gets older and then the uh, requests become, you know, for the car keys or uh, for uh, something you... Yeah, that may, may not be as beneficial. You're more likely to restrict that. We're still in the early stages of dealing yeah. with getting a positive response to our prayer. And we're going to have some tough love coming here. And, it, and another analogy I read I thought was interesting about the dark night is sort of like taking the soul from that romantic period or a um, romantic feeling of love to more of the truth of love, the reality of love, the love that stays there in the tough times. Stays there in the difficult times, right? Again, we said, and we'll continue on this theme of purification of our love. Love in Scripture is not fundamentally an emotion, right? Love is an act of will. In scripture, and we'll play out that theme, but I, I'll reiterate it because it's important. Our love at, at the end of the day, when it's purified, is an act of will. It is a choice, it is a decision, and we have that choice to make. As we go through these difficult stages, uh, we need to hold on to this scripture verse as well from Isaiah 55 8, uh, because much of what we will experience will not seem natural to us. In fact, this is John's second defense of why he uses the term dark night. He says, this process is not natural. We must walk by faith. And so in Isaiah we read, 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. This is Isaiah setting up what later John of the Cross would capitalize on, and helping us understand that we are limited in our human perception, in our intellectual ability to grasp the ways of God. God's ways are not our ways. They need to become our ways hence our walk through the active night of sense that we're talking about. And our souls aren't really adapted to experience pure spirit. You know, we're going to get inklings of that, but our soul's capacity must be expanded, and God does that. Uh, And we do our share of what we work, but it certainly doesn't depend on us. And this kind of takes me to this situation of relativism, um, because a lot of people think that, you know, Their worldview is the truth, (laughs) and it's not, because our perceptions are limited. And as we go through the dark night, we get to an an understanding more and more of how we don't see things very clearly. And as God opens our eyes and we start to see the things, and he he purifies us, and we get that clean slate, and, and then he fills us, and we start to see with his eyes better, then 
we start to understand more and more how minuscule we are and how great thou art. Yeah, I want to capitalize on that point you raise about uh, this change of our perception. Of course, St. Teresa, who we just finished the series on, continually reiterates that one of the greatest virtues that carries you through all of these stages is, of course, humility. And it's the ability in, in, in practicing the virtue of humility to acknowledge my preconceived or even later developed perceptions of God because they allowed me to sort of get my arms around it, if you will, or to give me something to hold on to. This is what God is. This is the way God operates. Those will be dismantled simply because, though they may be accurate, they're not sufficient. God is larger than that. God is more than what we can grasp. And so part of this purification of the sense, as we said earlier, our prayer will change in the way that our reactions, what happens in our prayer life, will not be what we had experienced before. We'll talk a little bit about the dryness. Let me just cover quickly these four stages so we can sort of set the table on where we are. And then we're going to go specifically into the active night of sense. Active night of sense, uh, again, when you hear the word active, know that we have a role to play. When we're talking about sense, it's in the largest context, the material, uh, the outwardly, the the um, uh, human experience of our life. It's all of that. It's not the interior that we will spend so much time on. The second phase is the passive night of sense. And we won't spend a great deal of time here. We'll talk about this in an entire program next week. But the passive night of sense, God has now taken over. He's beginning to help us detach ourselves and minimize our Uh, association with those passions, because we can't do that either, because as Francis said, we don't see it, or because we simply don't have the strength to uh, remove ourselves from that. It may be, again, a a bad job, a bad situation, uh, over-dependence on uh, on some substance, whatever the case might be. Uh, So God works very deliberately in that uh, phase uh, called the passive night of sense. The third is the active night of spirit. Again, we'll spend a very little time talking here, but God's begun to move to the interior. He's begun to work on our soul. We have a very active role to play in deepening our prayer life in uh, continuing to remove the uh, distractions from our life so that they don't impede our progress in prayer. This is a very important phase of, uh, of the four stages. The last stage, of course, is the passive night of spirit. We're going to spend a fair amount of time on the Passive Night of Spirit. It is the most difficult phase. Uh, It is the fourth phase. I should emphasize, you may go back and forth between these phases, Francis, right? I mean, it's not as though it's a a deliberate step and then you just sort of move through it. You you can drift back and forth a bit. I would say yes, but in general, the active and passive night of sense are experienced first. Yes, Um, yes. And then there's usually a honeymoon period where God kind of lets you readjust and live it for a while. And then comes the dark night of the Spirit. Right. And, and yes, I believe that there is some interchange there. But, uh, you know, it, it's usually God's working from the exterior and going deeper to the interior. So you right. would have the sense part first and then the spiritual part. Yeah, absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. God works, again, I'll emphasize this in do so continuously. God works with every single aspect of our life. Here's a great indication for you listeners, uh, for yourselves, if you wonder, well, gee, am I in anywhere near what John's talking about? Have I had that experience? If you've been praying for a while, if you've begun to practice the virtues, a critical step that John spends a great deal of time on, we must practice, actively practice the virtues. If you've taken full advantage of the sacraments, if you've begun to find that you're gaining success in overcoming some of those obstacles. I don't seem to have those bouts of anger. I don't seem to have that judgmental mindset that I had before. Um, If you've gone through some of that, and then you find yourself asking this question, what is God doing? (laughs) Doesn't he understand what's happening to me? Doesn't he know the situation I'm in? Has he left me here? You have a pretty good indication at that point that you've entered these dark stages of prayer and the work in the uh, both exterior and interior uh, of your life with relationship to God has probably begun right. when you find yourself facing that question. Yeah, you'll certainly feel like something's gone astray. 
something's different, but God's calling you to something different, too. And this is, of course, assuming that you haven't fallen back into sin, right? terrible sin, or that you're not purposely rejecting God or, or turning away from Him. So this is a soul still striving to grow in the love of God. Yeah. Now, what is what is not the dark night? Because a lot of times people say, oh, that was such a dark night. I'm, I'm, going, I'm having a dark night. So, you know, let, let's try to get it in the sense of how the Carmelites look at it. What, what, um, what the dark night is not, what would that be? Yeah, it, it, is a, it is a trap. I so often hear people who have gone through a difficult phase of their life, whatever that might be, uh, refer to that. They may be somewhat familiar with the terminology, and they'll use the phrase dark night. And I certainly don't make a, a judgment. I would never react to that. Um, but, but oftentimes I become concerned uh, that someone may not fully understand what a dark night is. It is not uh, a simple trial in life. It is not simply uh, a psychological state of mind. It is not, um, you know, the uh, just dryness in prayer does not necessarily validate a dark night. But John gives us some other very explicit examples. We have to be very cautious here because we don't want to fall victim to believing uh, that just the trials of our life are dark. We have to have entered a phase of desire of active prayer, of practicing a virtue, of uh, uh, taking advantage of the sacraments before these things begin to happen. And then uh, other examples of of what this is not. Well, it's not, like you said, it's not the ordinary trials of life. It's not necessarily mental or emotional problems. It's not like the divorce or the substance abuse or um, illness. But I have to say that God can use these things to help you grow. So, it, but the thing is not to generally saying just because we're having a tough time, that's a dark night. A, a dark night is is more like a a, a period of re, reorienting you into a, a way of perceiving God and His view and His love that that's different and and deeper. Just as when you first meet somebody and you are excited. You really like them, especially if it's a boy-girl relationship. There's there's something going on there. You know that that would be you know uh, passing, but you know marriage is a lot tougher than that. So you know this is drawing us to a deeper level. So it, trials and tribulations is going to happen all along, and and just because we're having a trial doesn't mean it's the dark night. But a dark night is is more of a a big picture of pro- progressing in the interior life. Yeah, so how do I know? One of the clear indications. I still find that I have that desire to please God, to love Him, and I'm worried that I might have offended Him. That sort of pervasive, uh, almost anxiety on some level, will be there. I will be very concerned that I may have offended the one who I have begun on some level to love the most. Uh, And that idea, that, that... a concern will remain with you through this dark night. That doesn't mean there won't be times, I, I said a moment ago, you'll wonder, what's God doing? And you may even have frustration or, uh, you know, experience or express some uh, so, some genuine anger. But at the end of the day, you're really concerned about your relationship with God and whether it's working out. Let's talk very quickly before the break, Francis, about this idea of asceticism. John uses the word asceticism. Don't let it scare you. Uh, like the dark night, it, it's not uh, something that should cause us to shy away. We're not asking you to go live in the desert. Asceticism is nothing more, it's the Greek word for exercise. And so let's put it in the context of exercise. Nobody would think about running a 5K race or a 10K race or entering a swim contest or entering an Ironman contest, whatever your fancy, uh, without preparing themselves physically. And what is that physical preparation? There's denial. There's denial of food. There may be on occasions denial of sleep that allow you to get your exercise in. There's difficult uh, 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 workouts. The, yeah, <laughs> difficult workouts that allow you to prepare your body for the test that it's about to undergo. That's what asceticism is. It's exercise. It's allowing you to prepare your soul, your heart, your mind for the challenge that you're about to undergo and the increasing challenge that the Lord's going to introduce you into in these phases of the dark night. Yeah, so our listeners can be thinking about what they are exercising within to grow. Well, we'll pick up on that theme of asceticism and take you uh, through the next phases of what John has to describe to us in the Act of Night of Sense when we return from the break. God bless.
Well, welcome again, friends of Carmel. Francis and I are back, and thank you for coming back. I wanted to remind our listeners that if you have had, and I'm sure many of our listeners have, experiences with St. John of the Cross, his writings or teachings about St. John of the Cross, maybe you've had experiences of the early stages of the Dark Knight, uh, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to get you to participate in the conversation. Please feel free to give us a call at one 866 333-6279. Again, we'd love to have you participate in the conversation. If you've got an observation, a question, certainly Francis and I will be glad to uh, share our own perspective on a, on a specific issue that somebody may have faced. Again, that number is one 6279 Well, Francis, let's pick up because uh, I know, as John says somewhere in his writings, uh, I know that one of uh, you has a question. In other words, he's literally saying, I can anticipate a question's mm-hmm. coming. Uh, and I can well imagine, because I had these questions when I began to read John of the Cross. We started to talk just quickly before the break about asceticism. Asceticism, of course, we know, leads to purity of heart. And purity of heart leads to an increase of faith, hope, and love. This is what we're after, is this purity of heart. John says, in fact, purity of heart is the ascetical goal which strives to rid oneself of everything that hinders the growth of faith, hope, and charity, and therefore obstructs infused divine intimacy, which contemplation is. This is contemplation, infused divine intimacy. And remember, the pure of heart shall see God, right? Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about that light. Uh, Well, uh, before we do that, because I want to make sure we hit this question, uh, the withdrawal of these uh, deliberate desires, these objects of inordinate sense satisfaction. Wait a minute, what is that? (laughs) What is that? (laughs) Yeah, that's John's language. So let's clarify John's language. What is he talking about? In the modern version, John would sound something like this. We must rid ourselves of compulsive behavior. Now, I have to confess, because my wife may well be listening, (laughs) I'm a compulsive neatnik, at least with regard to other people's messes. And so these are, uh, this is one of the examples that we've got to begin to address. In fact, I'll tell an interesting story. There was a a terrible image, actually, of um, um, the results of one of the storms in uh, in, uh, Southeast uh, Asia part of the, the world, Uh, where a a gentleman was sitting in his front yard, literally surrounded by his uh, material possessions, which were covered in mud. And I posted that particular picture on my uh, board at home for quite some time to remind myself um, that I needed to overcome my compulsive behavior about neatness. I don't know how well I've done. My family could tell me. But uh, nonetheless, this is uh, a method that John might have uh, applauded are employing to remind ourselves to begin to overcome compulsive behavior. Whimsical and erratic self-indulgence. What does that mean? Um, Sitting to eat the gallon of ice cream maybe wasn't your best decision (laughs) that night uh, when you got that bad phone call. But don't you think it could also be, you know, self-indulgent behavior as in wanting all the attention? Wanting attention is a good one, right? Uh, Pridefulness, vanity, being overly concerned about our appearance. And again, um, these are not things that we may quickly pick up on ourselves. In other words, we're blinded. We're not faulty. We're not, well, we are faulty, but we're not terrible people, let's say. We're simply blinded. A a, a veil has fallen over our our eyes, and we can't see because of the the, the, uh, log, if you will, in our eyes, the consequences of our own behavior. So, these less-than-perfect manifestations of our love for one another and for our Lord seem to come out in our day-to-day actions and interactions with one another. Uh, Things like compulsive smoking, no purpose, going and coming, uh, shopping, for example, um, selfish uh, indulgence in in, uh, affection with with other people. This gives Um, more meaning to that part of the Our Father where it says, Thy will be done, Exactly, exactly. And again, let's draw an analogy, as we did earlier, uh, to a very um, obvious and simple um, example in our own life. I said before, uh, we're not necessarily talking about a full-fledged uh, alcoholic or somebody who may be struggling with a, 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 a dependency, 
uh, on drugs or some other uh, addictive uh, uh, substance. But we, we may be talking about the overeater. And so what do you mean that this is distracting? What is John talking about? Think of ourselves on a Thanksgiving uh, Thursday, right? Every year, most places, you sit back and the meal is an engagement of family and there's a lot of conversation. Um, you know, the, you, you may be going for your second or sometimes third course and then there's the dessert. And, you know, it's a wonderful experience. But at the end of the meal... Everybody's loosening a belt loop, looking for the big <laughs> lounge. <laughs> and what happens? Inevitably, we become dazed and a little sleepy. And you know, <laughs> yes, the men always fall asleep. Yeah, don't they? <laughs> yeah. And unless we're really happy with the football game, we're, we're likely to find ourselves taking an afternoon nap. It's a wonderful analogy to what John's talking about. If How we're, so? How if so? we're overindulging in the material, um, um, you know, pleasures of our daily life. They will, by consequence, weaken our ability to perceive. They'll dampen our, our spiritual senses and minimize the ability of uh, us to understand what God is communicating to us. Now, I'm not saying that having a Thanksgiving dinner is a bad thing, but the analogy works, and John is using similar uh, language, though, though somewhat uh, more pertinent to his time, to help us understand, listen, what's happening in your body? That's what's happening in your spirit. If you're overindulging in music, in food, in in relationships, in shopping, whatever. You might be overindulging in the number of rosaries you buy or the number of images you buy or the number yeah. of books you're buying. A wonderful point. In fact, John talks about this very uh, issue. He says, listen, this issue of sense is not limited to the obvious things that we've just related and that many people might think about, food and drugs and so forth, or food, food and uh and friends and shopping. It also pertains, and this is where the hard work comes in, it also pertains to our spiritual desire for material things, as you've just said, right. Francis. Well, I've got three rosies. Well, I wear six medals around my chest, or I've got, uh, you know, uh, Francis, you and I can both raise our hands guilty. I've got 300 books at home on spirituality, or whatever the case <laughs> might be. Not in and of themselves bad things. But if the objects become a distraction to our purity of heart, removing everything that is an obstacle to our union, then John's saying, they must go. Right. We must remove them. He basically gives a, a lot of uh, writing. He gives us a lot of writing on the seven capital sins and the failures that beginners have in the spiritual journey. So, you know, if you want a good teaching on it, that's right where to go. Yeah. Now, again, Francis said this, and it's very important to understand. This process begins with the interior, and it moves to the exterior. Even in this active night of sense, where does it begin in the interior? We must desire to purify our hearts, to purify our love, so that we begin to image Jesus Christ, and we begin to present him in the world in which we live. We can't do that if we have these attachments. Now, I draw that analogy because I want to make this point. Uh, my beloved, Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, who I have great devotion to, says exactly this when she states in her writings what she believes will be her mission in life. Now, Elizabeth died in 1906, um, and Francis is going to share some interesting information about her in just a moment. But here's Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, a great Carmelite, um, writing about her mission. I think, she says, that in heaven, my mission will be to draw souls by helping them to go out of themselves to cling to God by a holy, simple, and loving movement, and to keep them in this great silence within that will allow God to communicate himself to them and to transform them into himself. So Elizabeth is calling us to come out of that interior. This is exactly what John's saying. We must remove ourselves from all those things that we've sort of cuddled up around ourselves that make us comfortable. And identified with. And identified with and begin to leave them behind so that we can cling to God. Right. Now, what do you want to tell us about our Blessed Elizabeth? Blessed Elizabeth? I hope this is what you were thinking. I can't help but share with everyone that the canonization process for Blessed Elizabeth has opened. So we hope it won't be long until we hear from our beloved Pope, that she is declared a saint. 
yes, and we're looking forward to that. Many graces will be flowing to uh, through the Carmelite family and, of course, to others. There are many, many others I know of who have a great devotion to Blessed Elizabeth who are not necessarily Carmelites, but so, I believe they're Carmelite in spirit. <laughs> let's call on a Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity to help us to grow in prayer. So, Elizabeth uh, uh, talks to us about clinging to God. John ex- describes this as a movement away from these dependencies on the things that make us comfortable. We've got to begin to detach. He instructs us that we can use our material life and our material possessions, including our religious uh, uh, comforts, if you will, uh, to begin to do that. Why do we do that? Why is it that we are called to move away from these comforts? Wouldn't it seem more natural, as it is, unfortunately, in many uh, Christian teachings, that, oh no, God is, is desirous that you would have these things. He wants to furnish you all these things. And of course he does. God does want to meet our needs. But this over-attachment has to be overcome. And the reason for that is what, Francis? Desire. We, want, we desire God with all of our hearts. And so if we don't have him, then we continue desiring him. And we don't even know it sometimes. And we look over here at taking vacations, or we look over here in these books to gain knowledge, or we look over here to go to these, have these devotions. But somehow we're not being filled. And so we're searching, we're searching, we don't even know what for sometimes. But things start to change. All of a sudden, um, even in our prayer, we're we're not able to pray like we used to. You know, maybe we're used to praying meditatively, um, thinking about the crucifixion and going from point to point to point and how it relates and what's happening and all the people there and what we would have been like if we were there. And now all of a sudden, you know, that that's kind of boring to us. Um, or we go to Mass and we're just kind of out of it, and, and, and yet we want to be in it, but we're, we find ourselves out of it. And, and so now we're feeling like, well, what's happening to me? I'm still craving God. I'm not falling back into sin, you know, such that it would be pulling me away. I'm still striving to be with God. So why are things changing? Why is my prayer life a mess right now? Yeah, why isn't it reacting the way that it used to react, right? I would pray, and I would uh, practice the virtues, and I would, you know, seek the sacraments, and I would do the things I was supposed to do, and certain things happen. Why isn't it working that way anymore? Well, John says that the great philosophers, of which he was a great student, John was very well educated. He was very well schooled. We said this last week, not only in theology and history, but also in philosophy and what at that time we we would today call psychology. John understood the human heart as well as perhaps anybody who's written in in uh, the vein of uh, spirituality. And John says the great philosophers teach us this: when we deny ourselves these sense experiences, this overabundance of sense experiences, sight, sound, smell, taste, etc., we become a tabula rosa, a clean slate, as John says, and then God can begin to fill that empty space with himself. In other words, we've filled up this space available to God with so much dependence on the material things around us. And again, uh, we have to keep emphasizing, these things in and of themselves not bad. We need cars, we need homes, we need to clothe ourselves, we need to feed ourselves. It's the over-dependence on them. We'll give an analogy about King David in a moment that John uses, and I think helps to sort of unpack this idea, but John is stressing that our over-dependence on these leaves us clouded, our perceptions are clouded. He's saying, slowly begin to remove these things, we become a clean slate, and God can begin to fill that empty space. And so in our prayer, what does this feel like? Well, you know, there's dryness. We don't get the, the good vibes, the good, the good feelings. We're deprived of spiritual consolations. We're having difficulty in this discursive meditation. We may be experiencing more grave temptations, especially against chastity and patience. Um, and we're more inclined to just just put all the books aside, put all the thoughts aside, and just look at God. We're just like so tired of everything. We just want to be, and, and that's a good place to be, in fact. <laughs> um, this is this simple gaze of love prayer, and God is calling us to that because now we're, we're getting away from the milk, the spiritual 
That's consolation. Paul, Paul talks about, right? Yes, and now we've got to get into more of the meat and potatoes, so there's going to be more hard work here. This is the time when infused contemplative prayer is Can beginning. begin. That's Can right. begin. But, right. but we've got to be open to it, and a lot of people will fight it. They feel like something's going wrong. They don't see God answering their prayers. They don't know where God is. But God is saying, hey, if you're not going to get consolations, are you still going to love me? Or are you just doing this for what you can get out of me? Let's go back to the analogy we used earlier, Francis. And again, I want to invite our listeners to please uh, feel free to offer their own observations, their insights. I know, and I've said this so many times, we have uh, wonderful uh, Carmelite listeners who've been on this path, many of them very far along in, in uh, uh, the journey to union with God and can share great insights on the material experiences they may have gone through. If you are such a person, please feel free to join the conversation. Our number here is 1-866-333-6279. Or maybe you just have a question, like the question I had, which is, why would I do this? Francis, why would I do this? This doesn't sound like fun. I thought, you know, religion was going to take me into these higher levels of joy and consolation. I was going to experience comfort, and God was going to not just give, you know, he wasn't going to give me a car and a house and all those things, but uh, I think even my basic uh, maturity, spiritual uh, immaturity was beyond that. But but at least I thought, well, I'm going to feel okay about things, aren't I? And you're telling me, well, I'm going to experience dryness. That means I'm going into the desert. I'm going to have to start giving things up. I mean, this doesn't sound like the life I signed up for when I said I was going to become a contemplative or I was going to, you know, begin to pursue a deeper relationship with God. And John tells us, in fact, he references John 4.24 and says, God is spirit, and those who worship him, i.e. those who develop this intimate relationship with him, must worship him in spirit and truth. And if we are so full of the material aspects of our life, of the worldly aspects of our life, we won't be able to worship with purity of heart in spirit. We can't begin to capitalize on that relationship, that coming out and clinging to God, as Elizabeth of the Trinity told us earlier. And if we love him, we want the real deal, and nothing else will satisfy us. So we're going to keep striving. So it's a good idea to know what this spiritual journey is about and, and what this dark night is about so that we can cooperate with God instead of fighting him. Now, let's um, go to this analogy that uh, John actually uses himself of King David. Uh, he says, he explains, David, even though he was a wealthy king, actually lived as a poor man. But how is that possible, Francis? How could David, surrounded uh, by... Uh, you know, the wealth and, and the uh, uh, material possessions of a king, someone who ruled literally as far as the eye could see. How could David be seen as a poor man? Well, this is poverty of spirit. He has all this wealth, but his heart is still set on God. And he sees the money as a means to, to do things with, but it's not his God. <laughs> uh, absolutely not. You know, he's striving for the real deal here. Yeah. So <laughs> then the immediate reaction certainly mine was, uh, when I first read this, was, okay, great. So, Mark, Francis, all you've told me is, as long as I'm not attached to those things that I own, then I'm okay. Well, here's the test, listener, because uh, this has happened, right? If, you, if you're going through this process, the Lord has great ways of helping us understand where our heart really is, even though we don't know. We are blinded. This is the reality we have to accept. We're blinded to our own deficiencies in this space. So, I don't need that car. Well, my son just borrowed the car and ran it into a tree. Now how much do I need that car? Or I don't need that job. I'm not connected there. I'm not sustained by the title I have in an occupation that I may have, uh, this reputation I've built and, you know, my academic credentials and all the rest of it. Uh, I don't need that. Really, Lord, I don't, I'm good. I, I, my heart's not attached to that. Okay, you're fired. Uh, that's been removed from you now. Um, now, I'm, mo I'm moving a little bit into the passive, of course, but I'm trying to uh, draw the analogy that, that John does with regard to David. David was not um, a wealthy man in the sense of his attachment and his passions. He could do without the things that God had provisioned for his life because David had a specific role, and those are the things uh, God required that he have in order to be uh, the king that he was. But we have to look inside our own hearts. This is the active part. We have to look inside our hearts and say, 
am I so connected with my reputation? Am I so connected to my material possession, my home, my clothing, whatever it might be? And more often than not, to be fair, uh, listeners, uh, the greater challenge is not with our material things. Most of us, quite frankly, if we have a steady prayer life, discover we can pretty much do without some of the material things in our life. It's the more personal aspects of our, still in the sense now, the more personal aspects of that. Can we slowly begin to dismantle that ourselves? That's what God is asking us in this active night of sense. And as we go through these opportunities, <laughs> I'll put it like that, they help us to know not to depend on ourselves, but to depend on God, to trust Him in all these situations. Because we don't know everything. We don't know all the possibilities. And if we can trust in Him, that is the biggest compliment, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And that's exactly what he's asking for. This purity of heart is faith, hope, and love operating at its purest level, dependence on God. I want to emphasize before we appear to minimize in any way uh, John's uh, adamant position on this. I'm going to quote directly from John's Ascent, uh, chapter 4 of book 1 of the Ascent, where John says, and this is his point about the seriousness of this uh, night and the battle in that we must engage in ourselves. This is not the Lord working in a passive way now. This is the challenge we must take on. Until a soul is purged of its attachments, it will be unable to possess God. Francis said this earlier, right? Man, the I pure just, of heart. I just read God. this the other day where Teresa was saying detachment is the quickest way to union with God. I'm like, those There's must motivation. have talked, right? <laughs> There's motivation enough. Neither here, John says, below, through the pure transformation of love, nor in heaven, through the beatific vision, will you be able to experience these until the soul is purged, he says, of its attachments. And again, in chapter 5 of uh, book 1 of the Ascent of Mount Carmel, John says, only if spiritual persons knew how much spiritual good and abundance they lose by not attempting to raise their appetites above these childish things. John's getting very adamant now. And if they knew to what extent, by not desiring the taste of these mere trifles, they would discover in this simple spiritual food the savor of all things. So John's saying, I know what I'm asking you to do. I did it. I know it's a challenge. But trust me, if you would begin the process of removing these things from your heart, the purity of heart, these passions and these attachments that you have, the riches would be overwhelming. Absolutely. And so that leads us into this question, Mark. Well, what if I'm in the dark night? What do I do now? Well, that's uh, rather very uh, simple, rather simple, the, re the reaction, because we're Carmelites, and so we know what we have to do, don't we? And I'm going to draw from our rule of Carmel, again, as we often do, go back to the rule the rule is very important. And it says in chapter 10 of the rule, each one of you is to stay in his own cell. What does that mean? In the interior of our soul, right? We know that. We've, we've gone through this. In the interior of his own cell, his or her own cell, or nearby, pondering the Lord's law day and night and keeping watch at his prayers and less attending to some other duty. Now, we can attend to the duties of our state in life. And by the way, uh, just quickly, one of the most difficult uh, uh, issues that we have to face in this active night of sense is simply that, Francis. It's fulfilling the responsibilities of our state in life. That in itself is a means of purification. And beyond that, for those of us who've made a commitment to a life in Carmel, the fulfilling of our obligations, our devotions, uh, the rule and the constitution. And why is it that that becomes so difficult? It's very simple. Um, if you make a commitment and you say, I'm going to pray every day, I'm going to say the rosary, I'm going to get to Mass every day, I'm going to go to confession once, whatever your commitment is, know that Satan is going to try to move you off of that objective and that goal. And we've got to keep watch. And that in and of itself is actively pursuing uh, this night of sense, as John talks about. I think we also have to beg God's mercy, right? I think we have to beg His mercy continuously, <laughs> exactly. absolutely. Uh, one last thing that John tells us in uh, chapter 13, actually, of this same book. Why must we do this? We are imaging our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And John quotes now Second Corinthians 10.4 and says, 
we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So this active night of sense gives us that ability to begin to image Christ in our life. Well, I want to thank our listeners for uh, joining us today. And Francis, uh, as you do each week, uh, would you please close us in prayer? Absolutely. This comes from John of the Cross from the Spiritual Canticle. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O faith of Christ, my spouse, would that you might show me clearly now the truth of my beloved, which you have infused in my soul, and which are covered with obscurity and darkness. For faith, as the theologians say, is an obscure habit, in such a way that what you communicate to me in explicit and obscure knowledge, you would show suddenly, clearly, and perfectly, changing it into a manifestation of glory. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. Thank you, Friends of Karma. We've enjoyed uh, being with you uh, again today, and we look forward to picking up with uh, St. John of the Cross next week, where we'll be talking about the passive night of sense, where God begins to do that work in us. God bless you, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Bye-bye.